Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Last week, we looked at the life of Abram, and we introduced God's call to Abram, and we're continuing to track through this man's life. But as we prepare to start our study today of chapters 13 and 14 in Genesis, I want to begin with a question, and I simply want to ask you, do you remember where you were when you met Jesus for the first time? Do you remember where you were when you met Jesus for the first time. Just ask you to hold on to that question. We're going to talk about it throughout the sermon today. Let me begin by reading the first four verses of chapter 13 before we continue. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Abram is not a man on top of the proverbial life mountain at this point. As a matter of fact, he's in the quite opposite valley or pit of shame. He has just come out of Egypt where he was kicked out by the Pharaoh himself because he lied and deceived Pharaoh by telling him that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. And when Pharaoh learned this, he became very angry And he gave everything back to Abram and just simply said, get out. Abram had failed miserably in following God as a husband, as a leader of his family, as a leader of the people who traveled with him in the larger family and and possessions that he had. But Abram models for us what we must always remember because of Jesus Christ in understanding God And it is this, friends, that you are never more ready nor righteous to come to Jesus than immediately on the heels of your greatest defeat, your ugliest shame. Do you know that? Just curious if you get that. Just wondering if there's any inkling within you that remains that would cause you to think that because of some measure of goodness, or presence of righteousness in yourself, that God was more happy with you when you came to him off of personal successes than defeats and shames. You see, friends, often the shortest distance to God begins at the bottom of the deepest pit of our failure and our despair. And that's what we're going to understand today as we walk through this passage There are two key phrases that I want us to look at in these first four verses that launch us into this study. And here's what it says. On the hills of his greatest failure and ugliest shame, Abram returned, verse 3, where his tent had been at the beginning to the place where he had made an altar to worship the Lord at first. 
And there he worshiped the Lord, it says. He called upon the name of the Lord. Abram returned to the place where he had first made an altar to worship the Lord and where he had first called upon the Lord. For those of you who don't know me and have never heard, I was saved in the middle of the night about 3.30 a.m., on my knees next to my bed after a number of hours of arguing, complaining, wrestling, and pouring out my grievances to God with him. And it was in that moment, it was in that time, that my heart turned and said, that's it. I give up. I receive you, Lord. You see, I'd known much about Jesus at the age of 16. I had grown up all of my life in church had been there at least three times a week, minimum. I had spent a lot of time studying the Bible. I had been to every activity that could possibly be conceived. But There was one thing that in the instant of that moment, that night, that I came to the reality of, was that all my knowledge and doing about God had not brought me to genuinely know God. And there I was, talking to him, but not knowing him. And it was in that instant that the Lord directed me to some passages of Scripture with a very simple guide that I had kept, where I believed in Jesus with saving faith, repented of my sins, and turned away from myself and put my trust in Jesus and was made new. Abram returned to the place where he met God at the beginning. The first place where he called upon the Lord. You see, friends, where we begin with God is where we continue to follow him all of our life. And that is with Jesus. With Jesus. Jesus is the beginning of life with God. Jesus is the first where we come to know God genuinely for who he is. And Jesus is the one in whom we walk with God all of our days. It's not a one and done. It's not a get in and take care of it yourself. But it's a come, follow me. Jesus says this of himself, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no man cometh unto the Father except through me. You see, in Jesus Christ, we are made alive unto God. And there is no person that knows salvation from God outside of Jesus Christ and putting our faith in him. He is the first and he is the beginning of worshiping God. He is the author of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the culmination of all things that it means to know God. In Jesus Christ, we know God and we are known by God. That's what the scriptures tell us. And so today, I want to begin with an invitation. I want to begin by simply inviting you to believe in Jesus Christ, to repent of your sin, to put your faith in Him, and have a point or a moment of beginning 
with God. Not just a religious experience, not even a participation in something that maybe you've done countless number of times or maybe today is the first time you've ever done anything like this. But beyond all of those things, to have a genuine origins of beginning with God through Jesus Christ. To be born again by putting your faith in His finished work on the cross for you and receiving the new life that he brings to you. The old to go away. The new creation to be made in you. Because of Jesus. You see when you believe the Bible says you are born again by his spirit. You are made alive with God. Going to church does not produce this. Being a good person does not produce this. Making the right decisions does not make you alive with God. Doing good things does not get you to God. Only repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus and receiving from him what he has done on the cross and the empty tomb will bring new life to you. You see, the gospel is the good news that we have new life with God by faith when we believe in Jesus. And when it tells us that Abram returned to the place where it all began with God and he called upon the name of the Lord, Genesis 12 has already shown us that worship is a key theme in Abram's life when he comes to the place that God tells him to come to between the mounts of Bethel and Ai, we saw in chapter 12, and there he began to call upon the name of the Lord. But even his greatest failure of going into Egypt and lying and putting the entire promise of God at risk by doing that if it had anything to do with him which it didn't God called him back to the remembrance of the place and there he followed the Lord you see we learn in chapter 13 from Abram's life that it is God that intends worship to be the way of following him it's not just something we do. It's not a religious ritual. And, and worship not meaning just showing up once a week among a group of people that we sing songs and pray prayers and hear scripture read. That's a critical part of worship, the gathered body of the believers, friends. It's important. But when I'm talking about worship today, I'm talking about you engaging the whole of your being, your heart and your mind to fill it and consume it with Jesus Christ. And when you gather with people, you are encouraged and strengthened by the body of believers within which you are identifying under Christ Jesus. And that becomes a greater expression of that. It is worship that God intends for you to be the way of following Him, both here and now, but every day and every moment of your life, wherever you go, wherever He leads. So with that idea in mind and that invitation extended, I want us to look at two lives that are contrasted in these chapters. The first we met last week, it was Abram, and we've been introduced to him. Today we're going to meet Abram's nephew, Lot. Lot. You see, Abram's life was one of blessing from God. Lot's life will become one of languishing from one trouble to the next. 
Abram was a man who was bent on worshiping God because he was listening to the call of God. He was not perfect. Chapter 13 fully reminds us of that. But he was a man who continued to return to the Lord Jesus in faith, humility, and repentance. Lot was a man who was bent on passivity towards God. Surely he saw all the things that Abram was doing. He just didn't have time for it himself. He saw all the extent that Abram went to to build the whole altar and offer up a calf. And why would he offer up a calf when he could have fed the whole family with that? Or he could have done great good for the money he could have gotten from selling that calf. And, And Lot just thought that what Abraham was doing was fine for Abram, but it wasn't any good for Lot because he had better ideas ideas and better plans with his life. He was passive towards God. And that led him to be consumed with himself. Abram will feel responsible for Lot because he brought him along. Lot will only ever feel responsible for himself. And that not even responsibility, but just greediness. You see, Lot's life became a product of passive languishing towards God, just letting himself be carried along, doing whatever he thought others thought he ought to do, only watching out for himself privately, but giving those little inklings of expressions that he thought others expected of him. And it led to a life of trouble and heartache, one after the other. And there was a sense about Lot where he could never quite figure out why it was that things didn't work out or seem to work out as well as they worked out for Abram. Passive languishing towards God is the way of failing to or avoiding altogether worship God. You may spend a lot of time around the things of worship, the practices of worship. But the fact is, it never penetrates into your own heart and mind. You hear the words of Scripture, but they don't get any further than the eardrums that resonate so that you can hear them. It doesn't penetrate to the mind and to the heart. It doesn't affect you in any way. You can sing or not. doesn't really matter. The worship service feels pretty much the same. You can pray or not it doesn't matter it just never gets below the surface why because you're passive towards these things and you languish because you wonder why God doesn't do more for you but worshiping Jesus friends keeps you in God's way of intentional obedience. Friends, here's what I want you to walk away with today. God calls us to worship him with our whole being and all of life in order to walk in his blessing and to be a blessing to others in this world. God calls us to worship him with our whole being and all of our life in order to walk in his blessing and to be a blessing to others in this world. Friends, new life in Jesus Christ is our beginning with God. It is a life that is centered on worship, consuming by filling our whole life, heart, soul, and mind with God and the truth of His Word and the work that He has done through Jesus Christ.
But be careful lest you think that it is a complete contrast of worshiping God against passive languishing. And that passive languishing might mean you have nothing, you never do anything right or never conceive of anything that is good. That's not true at all. As a matter of fact, it tells us here in just a moment, Lot was a very successful man. Lot knew a lot about the things that Abram spoke of, of God. He just didn't care anything about him for himself. Don't think that passive languishing means there's an absolute absence of God in your life. It just means that there's only the presence all around you, but not within you. And what happens is that the land will not be able to support Lot and Abram. Their flocks are too large, and that causes a problem. Go with me to verse 5 of chapter 13. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Wouldn't you hate that? What's your name? Parasite? Oh, have you infected anyone recently? Yes, everyone I've been around actually. Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Pause there with me for a moment. Abram loved Lot, but he couldn't make all of his decisions for him. He couldn't live his life for him. And so with no wrongdoing, the reality of the situation was creating a big problem. And that big problem was creating even greater problems. And so there was a need to separate before that problem created bigger problems that grew to bigger problems and were, or became worse. You see, one of the first things we see here is this, that love is always more committed to a healthy relationship than a personal preference. That's what Abram does here. And, and, and it's always committed to a healthy relationship over a personal preference, even when what is best for that relationship becomes what is hardest in that relationship. Abram told Lot to choose his land and that they would part way. So Lot looked and he found to him what looked like heaven. That's what the text describes for us. He looked and it looked like the garden of the Lord. That's a reference to the garden of Eden. That's a reference to the only place on the face of this earth that has ever known perfection and utopia. That's what Lot thought he saw when he looked and he chose the best for himself. He thought to himself, I hope Abram doesn't see what I see because here I go. And so Abram let him go and he settled 
where Lot was not interested. Lot moved his tent and it tells us he went all the way to Sodom. But verse 13 tells us something very interesting. It tells us the one thing that Lot did not take time to consider. Why? He was passive towards this kind of thing. What looked like heaven to him was inhabited by men who were great sinners and wicked unto the Lord. Lot's passiveness towards God drew him right into the heart of wickedness. Once Lot was gone, the Lord spoke to Abram. Look at verse 14. And the Lord begins to tell Abram. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth and the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The Lord tells him, look in every direction. Look north, look south, look east, look west. Look up, look down. The stars nor the sand will number what I will give to your family. Everything Abram could see, God would give to him and to his offspring. And he reminds him of the greatness of his promise that he made to him that brought him to the place where he was. When Abram surveyed the greatness of God's promise, where did it lead him? Into the abundance for himself? No. Chapter 13 ends by telling us there again he built an altar to the Lord. And worship. When Abram surveyed the greatness of God's promise, it led him yet again to worship the Lord. You see, friends, what it is that rules your heart matters because it will determine how it is that you see everything that is before you and how it is you interpret all that that means to you. What happened with Abram is that faith empowered him to see. All that was around him in light of God's call. And in a moment, I'll say this. He didn't just see it in light of God's call, but he discerned it in that way. In other words, it's an intentionality to see in a specific way because of what you know about the one giving it to you. Instead of determining God's call by what he thought was best and what would provide the most, instead of determining that way, he discerned it based on what God had said to him and not what he just thought about it. And so in a renewed vision of God's call, Abraham worshiped God. And there was no direction there was no depth, there was no dimension of Abram's reality or being that was absent of the all-consuming, overwhelming reality of God's promised love. You know, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians and he prays for the Ephesian church that the reality of God's love would consume us today in the same way. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 17 to 19 says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Overwhelming, overflowing. Friends, when we know God's great love, we come to trust and rest completely in Him by the discernment of our life. Worship is the only way to truly grasp a vision of and to trust in God's love for us. Now when we come to chapter 14, here's what we learn. Even bigger problems are on the horizon. They're stirring. And they will reveal a greater languishing to Lot, but a greater blessing to Abram. Isn't that the way that God works in life? If you can give a testimony, wouldn't you say, Christian, that no matter what came, be it blessing or hardship, God always turned it to bless me through it. And that's exactly what takes place. In chapter 14, kings and worldly leaders begin to do what kings and worldly rulers do. They began to draw up lines, form alliances, and they went to war. Nobody could have expected what was taking place because prior party lines were now being crossed for the current priorities that were being set. And all of a sudden, what at first looked like heaven to Lot was now stripped bare. In an instant, his wonderland became a wasteland. In an instant, the land of promise now was the very land that imprisoned him. Sin is wicked in its deception. For the security and the provision that the world had promised to Lot all of a sudden collapsed. And everything that rested on that promise collapsed with it. You see, friends, Lot's passivity towards God and his preference for worldly stuff that satisfied his eyes had conflicted his heart and left him destitute. And where was he destitute? But in the midst of a land of great sinners and wickedness against the Lord. You see, friends, when you continue to deny Jesus and you say no and you say some other time and you tell him not today or I've got a better way, but you continue to say no to him and you continue to walk in your own way, what will happen is when sin catches up to you, and it will because it always does, you will find yourself Absent of the presence of God, but surrounded and overwhelmed by the wickedness that you've walked into by following the darkness. That's where Lot finds himself. And in the midst of this, the kings that had formed new alliances overwhelmed and conquered the land. And they took everything and everyone for their spoils except for one who escaped, chapter 14 tells us. And they came to tell Abram. And so Abram, hearing of Lot's demise, loving Lot even though he was separated from Lot, gathered his men and took them to rescue Lot. And the verses tell us that he was victorious and he retrieved all of Lot. He retrieved all of Lot's possessions and he retrieved all of those who remained with Lot and all of his family. And on the return, he encounters two kings. And another revealing incident occurs. It's interesting in chapter 14, beginning in verse 17, that we see a second contrast that will create not only a second challenge, but yea, even a temptation. 
expectation from his success and his victory. I have come to learn in my life that failure is very difficult to survive. If I'm honest with you, failure is not an option in my mindset. I've told you before, when God handed out the fight or flight syndrome, I didn't get the flight. Right? I mean, I've just lived my whole life often failing because I know nothing but fight. But friends, I've come to learn that even more difficult than surviving failure is surviving success. Because of the temptations and the allurements that come, it doesn't even have to be a big success. Just big enough to bloat me enough to think I don't need God. And in that instant, the temptation to step away from Him is most closely to me. That's what we see here. I want you to see this. Two kings. The king of Sodom. Who's the king of Sodom? Well, he's one of the kings that just got his country taken away from him. He lost because his former allies betrayed him, crossed lines, and attacked him with their new allies and conquered him. He's returning from defeat. He's learning the lesson of failure. The second king is Melchizedek. He is the king, it says, of Salem. We have no idea where Melchizedek came from. And after this, we don't know where he goes. We don't know how in the world did this guy just show up. But it tells us something about him. He's not only the king of Salem, which is the Hebrew word for peace, but he is also a priest of the most high God. A king and a priest will come to rescue the day. Now, both of these kings recognize Abram in his victory. Melchizedek, first of all, tells us that he blesses him. Look with me in verse 17 of chapter 14. After his return from the defeat, Melchizedek, verse 18, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him, speaking of Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. In other words, he said, Abram, you are blessed with the victory that you have secured today, but you are blessed with the victory because it has come from the hand of God most high. And it tells us that in response, Abram gave a tenth of everything. And so all of a sudden, Abram recognizes God's representative and he gives to him a tenth or a tithe of every time. This is the first time the word tithe is introduced in Scripture, and it is used as a representative portion of the whole. The king of Sodom is watching on, and he thinks, you know, maybe I can get a little something out of this. And so he comes to Abram, and he too dares to bless Abram. Verse 21, he says, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And look at Abram's response. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshel and Mamre take their share. 
you see the king of Sodom recognizes Abram's victories and he tries to give the spoils of the victories to him. But Abraham says, not happening because he sees what at once from Melchizedek was a blessing from the Lord, rightly recognizing God with all honor, praise, and glory. But what came from the king of Sodom was a business transaction that only sought greater power upon the earth. And Abram says, will absolutely refuse that, won't even keep so much as a thread or a sandal strap because you will have no say in God's honor and God's glory in my life. Not going to happen. He leaves no room for wickedness that it might steal God's glory or that it might be a temptation to him to give God's glory to something else. Friends, that's intentional obedience. Abram knows that all and every blessing is from God alone. Lot was conflicted by his passiveness. Abram is intentional to ensure that God alone is the one that is worshipped with his whole life. And Abram focused on honoring God because his heart was consumed with one glory. How? In worship to the Lord. I'm going to spend the remainder of our time today offering to you five ways from this passage to walk in intentional obedience and to destroy passive indifference and passive languishing wherever you may find it in your life. Five ways worship fuels intentional obedience. Way number one, worship guards the heart so problems don't consume and rule you. Worship guards the heart so problems don't consume and rule you. You see, friends, a heart that is clouded and conflicted is the heart that is most susceptible to being overwhelmed by the situation. And that cloudiness and confliction always confuses the mind in its thinking. And what does the twist of thinking do? But it deceives in the understanding. A heart that is set on the Lord in worship is ready for whatever comes because it is anchored in Jesus. It doesn't mean you don't have problems. Abram had problems. And those problems were creating bigger problems that were threatening with greater problems. And then when the big worldwide problems hit that he had nothing to do with other than being in the wrong place at the right time, he was conflicted by those problems at well. Abram felt the struggles, the problems, and the challenges of the world. He felt the problems and the struggles of too little land on his herds. But he didn't allow the problems to overwhelm his heart and what it was that he knew of the one who had called him. Friends, that's conflict. That's internal. It's deep. It's hard. And that's when worship becomes a battle strategy for how we guard the heart to walk with God. You see, when the heart is anchored in Jesus through that strategy of worship, if you will, your mind doesn't get on the roller coaster of the unknowns, but it stays tethered to the promises of God, revealed to us in the truth of his word, knowing that he is the one who called us. He will be the one who comes through for us. That's the first way that worship guards the heart to walk in intentional obedience. The second way is that worship prioritizes love for people above the love of stuff or selfishness. Abram felt the conflict with, with Lot over their flocks 
But he never let the threat of loss nor the threat of insufficient provision cause him to cease loving or caring for Lot. This is important. Who is Lot? Lot is a man who his whole life was covered by someone else's love practically. Like his whole provision. He had a lot of stuff. But all of his stuff was under the provisional umbrella of Abram. That's what we learned to this point. But it's Lot who lost his way. The threat of trouble and potential for abundance both have a way of revealing the heart's true priority. You see, trouble revealed Abraham and his love for Lot because he was honoring God by loving his nephew. The potential for great abundance is what revealed Lot's love And that was a love set on self. Friends, there is never a time in life when God calls us to stop loving others in order to follow the Lord. There will be times when loving others will demand personal sacrifice. Sacrifice of our preferences, sacrifice of our conveniences, sacrifice of our abundance, and sacrifice often what may even feel like our very provisions. But when those situations arise, love for God will see a greater glory in loving others by our own sacrifice. And when the heart is held by Jesus in worship, the values and the priorities and the glory of His truth come through in the way we love other people, no matter the potential cost that it threatens to self. The third way that worship leads us to walk in intentional obedience is that worship recognizes God's blessing as the source of all that we do have and all that we do not have. When Lot left, Abraham was alone with the leftovers. Right? You choose whichever way you want to go, Lot, and whatever is left over, that's what I'll take. And friends, it was in the midst of the leftover that God met with him and reminded him of his promise. Abraham discovered this in the way he loved Lot. That where God led him in loving and remaining faithful to love others is exactly where God wanted him. God directs him to look. And he tells him, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. As far as the eye can see. And you know what? Walk on it. And every place that your sandal touches the sand... I will give to you. There will not be more stars in the heaven, nor will there be more grains of sand on the earth that even compare to your offspring. Every glance, every gaze, and every step, Abram knew it was all from God. You see, worship consumed Abram's heart to know that all was from God's hand of blessing to him. Even what he didn't get in the place that originally looked like heaven. Worship recognizes that your whole life is from God. In all that you have. And by God's grace. With all honor, praise and glory to him. All that you don't have either. Have you learned both of those lessons? The temptation remains. The fourth way is that worship guards 
from walking into a trap of darkness or wickedness by spirit discernment. Abram's focus remained on honoring God in the way that he loved Lot. And that actually became a guard for him for his whole life. Lot's selfishness became a deception to him that led him into a trap of wickedness. You see, what selfishness does is it distorts our vision by twisted thinking. And once our vision is distorted by twisted thinking, deception is the only reality that can come. Sin will never allow you to see destruction coming, but it will always come. Do not be deceived, the scripture says. Sin will find you out. The heart of worship trusts God's will by the discernment that God's Spirit brings to our eyes. Listen to Romans chapter 8 describe how the Spirit works in the one who is worshiping God through Jesus Christ. Romans 8, beginning in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's what Lot did. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's what Abram did. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Friends, God's Holy Spirit is working at all times to illumine to counsel, and to guide the heart and the mind that is consumed with the glory of God so that in our mind, our way aligns with the will, with the way, and with the purpose of God Almighty as we walk after his call that is set upon our whole life. That's what worship does. And the fifth way that worship fuels intentional obedience is that it honors God with all of life's stuff to guard us against the entanglement with the world. When Abram is met by the two kings, he recognizes it as a test of his heart. The heart that is consumed with Jesus knows that every situation is an opportunity to honor God and every inkling of the mind that says God really doesn't care what I do here is a temptation To be passive to the things of God. Abram gives a tithe of everything to Melchizedek Melchizedek, to demonstrate that God owns it all. And he rejects any profit from wicked tithes because he wants no threat to remain to God's glory. Because he knows that threat that remains will return as a temptation You see, friends, the tithe is a specified, prioritized portion, one-tenth of the whole. And it is given in representation of the whole. Where the tithe is offered reveals where the whole is focused for honor and glory. And when Jesus consumes the heart, one's thinking about their life and representing it in the way they honor God shifts from what is it that I can give to God to how is it that I can bless others and his name because of all that he has given to me. Tithe, the first tenth of all, Tells God that you know he owns it all. 
and tells others that he, Jesus Christ, is worth it all. That's what it says. And so I ask, is your focus in life clear because your heart is consumed with God's glory? Or are you confused and clouded by passiveness and that's left you conflicted? Hear me, friends. Worship is the way of following God, filling our heart and our mind with Him so that all of life glorifies Him. Worship is the way to find your way when you have lost your way by following God's way. Worship keeps you in God's way by honoring His glory alone. God is calling you to worship Him today with your whole being and all of your life to walk in His blessing and to be a blessing in His name to others. Friends, I have often returned to that bedside where Jesus met me with a life-changing power that night. I've never forgotten the reality of what took place in my life on that night. And I want to invite you today, I want to urge you, I plead with you. Begin following God's way by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Because He is the way to follow God always. Let's pray.